Hello and welcome. My name is Richard Lander of CityWire and joining me today on this podcast is James Sim, who is the Portfolio Manager of the River and Mercantile European Fund. Uh, we're here to discuss with James the attractions of investing in Europe and how he goes about selecting stocks for his funds. So welcome, James. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with a view of Europe that I think a lot of investors hold, and that is Europe is great as a home for established luxury brand names uh, that sell well around the world, but less renowned as a centre for innovation. And as a block, it's a somewhat troubled, divided continent. So, James, let's take that view and, and hear your case for investing in Europe. I think those comments, Richard, are perfectly fair, uh, to be honest. The, Europe has some serious structural issues. I suppose as a, an investor, obviously, one thing fund managers always say is they invest in the companies, not in the economies, isn't it? Which is, which is obviously true. Now, I suppose as somebody who's a European investor, what I think and what I hope is that the next business cycle that we're about to start is going to favour those things that we are quite good at innovating in. Um, and an obvious example of that is environmental change or the energy transition. Um, you know, a, a lot of the European companies are absolutely preeminent in those fields in the way perhaps they, they, they haven't been in, in big tech. Yeah, I mean, it's point talking to other European investors. It's, it's, not the, uh, it's not the flashy stuff. You're not going to get your new iPhone from a European company. Uh, but it's it's the, the less glamorous work behind the the scenes that perhaps Europe is better at. And you, you mentioned there uh, the next cycle focus on ESG and climate change. Uh, so perhaps let's just go go down that uh, place a little deeper. What what sort of companies uh, are you looking at? Or what sort of things are they making? What services are they providing to help this this next cycle get uh, get underway? Yeah, so, so my personal uh, investment predilection is, is one that has valuation discipline at its heart. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a value investor per se. Um, and that obviously, when you get a theme like climate change or energy transition, that, that can be a challenge, can't it? Because obviously, the market recognises that as well, and a lot of the companies re-rate very significantly. So what, what I've often found myself, particularly on the energy transition, since we, we, we launched our fund in um, September, our new fund, it, is that we're actually looking at almost like the derivative plays, um, not the most obvious headline-grabbing uh, companies, but companies perhaps with 30 or 40 or 50 or 60% of their revenues or profitability geared into those themes. And in Europe, you can still access those on very reasonable valuations, actually. Um, and we've already seen, even, even in the four months we've been running the funds, some of those stocks have done very well because, because it's less obvious, it's taken a little bit longer for the market to, to recognise. The market needs to see a bit more evidence, if you like, that those stocks are going to benefit from, from the energy transition. Right. Okay, so any any particular areas that you might just want to tell us about that, uh, or, yeah. or com example companies? Yeah, really good. Um, a really good. Let, let's run through the sort of wind, offshore wind farm industry. Okay, so offshore wind we know is going to be a much bigger part of the European energy mix over the next twenty and thirty years, but, but certainly over the next five and ten as well. Now. 
there's a few ways you can play that. The preeminent offshore wind farm company in Europe is Orsted, Danish yep. business. Everybody's uh, ESG darling is Orsted. Everyone knows it. It's done very well. Fantastic management team. Um, nothing against Orsted, apart from the fact the shares are up 400% uh, since IPO or more. Um, now, I've, there's another issue with Orsted, apart from the valuation, which is I do not read a, a, a capital markets day from an oil and gas company that doesn't say it wants to get into renewable energy. You know, BP's really led the way on that, hasn't it? So I think the competition is just about to get a lot tougher for Orsted. So then you think about, well, what else, how else can I benefit from that very clear theme that we are going to um, produce a lot more offshore wind? So you think about maybe the wind turbine manufacturers as the picks and shovels, if you like, you know, in the Californian gold rush, wasn't it? It wasn't the gold miners that made all the money. It was the guys selling the picks and shovels. So let's think Absolutely. about the wind, the wind turbine uh, manufacturers. So Siemens Gamesa, for example, preeminent company uh, in, in that regard. In fact, both the European um Companies Vestas and Siemens Gamesa really, really dominate those big, big turbines. And Siemens Gamesa had a very checkered past, actually, so, you know, series of profit warnings over the years. Now, it has got become a more technical product. It probably is a better business. But the rating, in my mind, you know, already more than reflects that. So you've asked, you've asked me for a, a stock exposure to the theme that I've highlighted, and I've given you two that I don't like. But we, right. so we need to go a little bit further down the supply chain. And what you've actually find is that the cable, the high voltage direct current cable to connect up this offshore wind farm, there's three companies in the world that can provide that really. And it's Nexans, which is French, Prismian, which is Italian, and NKT, which is Danish. And those companies don't trade on particularly high multiples. It's not the only thing they do. They also do some industrial cables. They do some telecommunication cables. Actually, the outlook of both of those areas, I think, think is reasonable. But certainly if I think about, for example, NKT, it has a very significant exposure to that offshore wind, those high voltage direct current cables. And so we're, and we're able to buy that company when we, when we launched the fund, we were able to buy that company on, on a historic multiple that, that was very much in line with history, but with a much better outlook. It's interesting you talk about those ESG plays because I think, I mean, it's not just in Europe, but everyone says, yes, we're going to go for ESG plays and climate change. And what they don't think is, is you know, these things are made of, of copper. Uh, the, wind, the wind turbines are made of steel and that's made of iron. That's got to be dug out of the ground and that's a fairly dirty business. So I, I think for an investor like you, it's not just saying we, we want to go for the ESG and climate change plays. But then you've got to look at the companies themselves and see if they are behaving well from a from an ESG point of view. Is that is that something you spend a lot of time doing? Uh, definitely, um, it is. I don't think you can launch a fund in 2020 without talking about ESG, can you? And uh, I think the nice thing was, you know, with it with a blank sheet of paper, we were a really able to put that um, at the, the heart of what we do. So what what we say is that we want our companies, as well as thinking about are they going to make good investment returns alongside that? And that, that's really the key word for me. Alongside that, we're considering what is their impact on society. And we've said we want to invest in companies that are having a positive impact on society and companies that clients can be proud of investing in, that I can be proud of investing in. 
And obviously, as you say, that that's both their activities, but also um, their corporate behavior. Let's circle back a bit about the fund itself, because you've, as you say, it's about, it's not even six months old. Uh, and when you launched it, uh, you know, well, first of all, there is no world shortage of European equity funds. So why did you think you could add something for investors that they couldn't find elsewhere amongst the, I don't know how many there are, 20, 30, 50 European equities funds that, are, that you, they can buy on any platform? Well, it's a very fair point. Um, European equities, although they're probably more out of favour than they have been for a, for a long time, because obviously Europe for the last cycle, as we've we sort of touched on, was a bit of a competitive disadvantage to the US. Uh, there, there are there are there are many funds. I, I think what uh, you know, every fund manager likes to think he's doing something a bit unique, doesn't he? But I, th I think what we're doing perhaps that is a little bit different is because growth has been such a preeminent theme over the last cycle. And so what I think I can offer uh, investors is, is to look at the other parts of the market that are a bit out of favor. You know, in a way that's like my investment DNA is that contrarianism. Uh, and there we were able to find very attractive, um, uh, very attractive opportunities. And in particular today, what we've been able to do, I think, is build a portfolio that really is geared into the recovery that I suspect we will see over the next two to three years as we come out of this coronavirus crisis. Um, and it's that recovery exposure that I think we bring uh, potentially to clients, uh, you know, but perhaps sat alongside one of these fantastic growth funds. And there's lots of very good ones and there's lots of very good growth managers in Europe. I take nothing away from that. Um, but, but I suppose what I would say to clients is if we're going to, into the recovery phase, then do they really have a portfolio that is going to benefit from that period of the business cycle? And do they have that effectively inflation protection? And, and that's that's how I think we see it. Because, mm. I mean, the timing, uh, I mean, no one can predict when when's the best time to launch a fund. But it was after six months of this terrible pandemic. Uh, and I guess starting with a clean sheet then for what you might call a, a post-pandemic recovery probably was quite a happy accident for you. Well, it, well, it certainly created lots of opportunities. Um, that's for sure. We, we actually, by the time we launched the fund, we, we were just at the beginning of the second wave. Um, now, I always talk about being contrarian, but also being pragmatic. So we'd, we'd actually launched with, a for me, a relatively balanced portfolio with the intention that we would expose the fund um, to recovery as as we saw that become embedded. Now, in the event, we got the opportunity to do that very quickly, didn't we, with the vaccine news in the middle of October uh, with very high efficacy. Um, now, it's going to be a bumpy road. We're seeing that today uh, and seeing that over the last week or so in Europe. Um, but I think ultimately the big picture is, is pretty clear, isn't it, about where the uh, European economy is heading, um, certainly over the next 12 to 18 months. And so, so yes, you're right. It has created a, quite a nice opportunity there. You mentioned those words, pragmatic and contrarian, and uh, you know, lots of fund managers call themselves pragmatic. Lots call themselves contrarian. Not many call themselves both. How how do those two terms fit together? Yes. So we've got I've got a process that I've um, used really since I started running money uh, from a top down perspective, and it's what it is really is a framework, um, which is we call the business cycle. And effectively, what we're saying there is, as we move through the cycle, we know that different companies will, will do well at different points. 
So that, that's a very, I would say that's a very pragmatic uh, approach, isn't it? A dogmatic approach would be to say, I buy wonderful companies um, or I buy very cheap stocks. You know, that's all I do is I, I buy the cheapest parts of the market. That would be a dogmatic approach. And, and, and both of those are very valid investment approaches. My approach is to say, where are we in the cycle? Well, what sort of companies are going to do well? Will it be a growth stock? Will it be a defensive stock? Will it be a cyclical stock? Or as today, um, we, we think uh, you know, many recovery stocks are well positioned. So that, that's the pragmatic element of it. But it also, doesn't it, has a, has a contrarian um, part to it, a business cycle framework, because what you're basically saying is at the bottom of the cycle, um, you know, when there's metaphorical blood on on the streets, that's the time to go in and, and, and dial up your risk exposure and look in those sort of more beaten up cyclical parts of the market for the opportunities. And conversely, when you're at the end of the cycle and everyone's very bullish, let's say, that's when you want to start to move uh, more defensive. And so that's how we sort of tr marry up our pragmatism and our contrarianism one of the other things you talk about is is you talk about franchise as a term which uh which means different things to different people what is it by what are the franchises you're looking for in your portfolio i think when you've run money for a period of time obviously you pick up lessons on the way don't you and Mistakes that I've made over my career have often come when we've put the valuation cart, if you like, before the investment horse. So, so making sure that we are buying decent franchises. What do I mean by decent franchise? Broadly, I mean a company that is either covering its cost of capital uh, and creating value or has got a pathway to uh, cover its cost of capital and improve. So that, that's one key thing. And the other key thing about a franchise, particularly if you're buying a growth stock, is to ensure it's got a, a good runway. So it's not going to run out of growth, you know, because it either saturated the market or the competition's come in. So does a company have a good runway? It's another key part of buying a good, good franchise. Um, so, so it's just making sure that we're considering the quality of the franchise alongside, um, you know, the, the specifics of the valuation argument, whether that's the margins going to improve or, uh, you know, the company is very cheap and there's a catalyst um, or there's some corporate activity that might take place. Alongside that, we've got to make sure that we're actually buying into a robust franchise. And that's in a way that just comes from some of the experiences I've had as an, as a, let's say a contrarian investor over the years. Yeah. Some you get it right. And then you learn from the lessons when you get it wrong. Yeah, you, you know, I think it's Ray Dalio who says he much prefers to get it wrong because then he's learned something when he gets exactly. it right. Yeah. Great doesn't feel like it at the time, does it? But uh, <laughs> I guess in fun management as in life. So uh, one of the franchises you've got in there is is Walt Disney. Now, I know they've got a park just outside Paris, which I had, I had the misfortune to have to visit several years ago, but it's not very European apart from that uh, that park, which I guess is closed now anyway. Yeah, well, I suppose um, the glib answer would be I've got three small children and they demanded it. But uh, the, the real answer is actually occasionally, because, because I now operate on a, on a, in a global team, we come across a compelling investment idea, you know, as, as a team that, that really you can't get in Europe. And mentioned unique franchise. I mean, Disney really is a, a unique franchise, isn't it? Um, 
so we can talk through the investment case of Walt Disney, but I think we would, we're very judicious with that overseas exposure. Uh, I think, I think it, again, you mentioned what makes the fund a bit different. I think the fact that we can access a few global stocks is, is quite interesting, um, you know, within our mandate. Um, so, 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 you know, make no apologies for that because it's in a way it's unique and we don't really have the equivalent no, franchise in Europe that, that we do with Walt Disney. Obviously today, again, you know, although it's not a value stock, it is certainly a recovery stock. Which the parks are all closed. Yeah, and they seem to be, you know, they're going to streaming in a big way. Uh, I was right. delighted, delighted to see the Muppets are going to come to Disney Disney Plus next month. So that should that could help you with uh, once homeschooling is done for the day. So, uh. well, the the the, um, the other thing, of course, is that you know if you take the valuation of Netflix and and you think about what could Disney Plus do. I mean, it's been a roaring success so far. Yeah. Really, you know, they really smashed their targets that they 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 put out. I think they'd beaten their five-year targets after uh, nine months or so. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I, it just goes to show what Disney is to me. Really, is a series of brands, sub-brands, Little Mermaid, Lion King, whatever, that they have multiple channels of monetizing. Now, whether that's through the cinema whether it's through the parks, whether it's through streaming, um, it doesn't in a way matter. The DNA of Disney is all these wonderful brands and they have an amazing ability to keep creating new ones as well, um, don't they? So it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking about Disney. Most people look at the different divisions and say, you know, if I apply a multiple, then it could be worth X. But really, I think the fundamental of Disney as a franchise is it's, it's just very good at creating new brands and then monetizing them through all the different channels that, that it has and in fact can invent uh, new ones all the time as we've seen with the streaming um, streaming business. Yep, cool. Well, we could talk about Disney all day, but let's circle back and end up talking about Europe. Uh, how do you see investing in Europe changing over the next five years? I mean, you look at your portfolio today, do you see it being very different in five years time when maybe we've gone through this recovery cycle, maybe even coming out of it or even on the downslope. Uh, so much is going to change over the next five years. How, how do you see things panning out? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a lot to unpick there, isn't there? So we've got, we've got the cyclical comment and then we've got the structural comment. So you're certainly right that as we move through the recovery phase, we would, we would expect to shift our portfolio. Um, now, the structural comment is how might, I think, you know, actually, if we think about it on a longer term perspective, how might this cycle be different for Europe from the last cycle? And one clear theme for this cycle is going to be energy transition. And we've, we've already touched on a few stocks there. So I don't think that's going to go away. Um, I think another big difference is the change in policy mix. And now I think most people have got their head around the fact that energy transition is going to be a very important theme. I think perhaps what's still up for grabs very much is what impact is the shift in policy mix, which is a response to COVID, but is actually putting in train things that were already in place. So the previous cycle in short to, shorthand, the previous cycle was all about monetary policy. It was all about creating conditions that people could service the very high debt levels they had. 
And what central bankers did was suppress yields, either through QE or much lower uh, interest rates. And the, uh, an unintended or perhaps an obvious consequence of that, but it's not a desirable one, is it massively increases inequality. Because if you're pushing up asset prices to lower the yield, then it's the rich people that have those assets by definition. And that created a few issues. And one of the issues was that there was a lack of demand. Uh, the mechanism is varied and sometimes unclear, but empirically we can see that there was very little demand in Europe over the previous cycle, very little demand growth, um, as we had these very high asset prices and, and, and um, negative interest rates. So you've got a much different policy mix. You've got fiscal stimulus plus very loose monetary policy. Central bankers are clearly going to keep um, bond yields and interest rates low for as long as they possibly can. And that is going to create potentially fireworks, I think, for various asset prices. And you put on top of that all the pent up demand that you've got within the consumer um, who has not been able to spend in the way that they were used to over the last 12 months as we've gone through the global pandemic. I think you've got a recipe for much, much higher nominal growth through this cycle. Well, that, on that intriguing note, uh, we'll see how it all works out. So uh, thank you very much, uh, James Sim of the River and Mercantile European Fund for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun and I hope to catch up soon. Thank you very much. Cheers, Richard.